All right, so Jesus has finished teaching his disciples. Um, We saw last week that he finished up saying again, the hour has come, you're gonna be scattered. Um, I'm gonna be alone, but I'm not gonna be alone because my father's gonna be with me. We've stretched this out over months, but this whole thing happened within a couple hours. I mean, it's not like, it's not like it took months the way we've done. Um, so he said the hour has come and you can hear this hour beating like a heartbeat through John's gospel. The appointed time, the time to which all of history had been looking, um, the time which actually splits history in half the time that all mankind had been hoping for, the promised seed that was promised back in Genesis had come and was gonna crush the serpent's head. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He turns from them, raises his eyes to heaven and starts talking to his father, just like he was talking to them. It's the same kind of conversation. Now he's talking to his father in heaven. We're entering the Holy of Holies with our great high priest. I feel like I should take my shoes off because we're standing on holy ground here. Um, Jesus prays first for himself, then for his disciples, and then for us, which is just incredible. So let's read verses one through five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus became a man to reveal God to us, his character and his ways, to show us what it looks like to live a perfectly obedient life, fully dependent on God for everything that he did in every trial and circumstance. But this is not the only reason he came. He also came to give his people eternal life, to restore what had been forfeited in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was about to face the ultimate test. He would be lifted up in shame on a cross, bearing the sin, all of the sin, of all of the redeemed people of all time. I can't imagine the crushing weight of it. Um, And his father, from whom he had never been separated for even an instant, would turn his back on him and punish him for sin that he had not committed, for our sin for every bit of it. This was a crisis. So Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed to his Abba, his father. What do we do when we're in a crisis? Do we lift our eyes to heaven or do we look around at the circumstances and at the people? I think we need to follow his example and lift our eyes to heaven. What he prayed for was glory. First, he prayed that God the father would glorify him in accomplishing the work that he'd given him to do. And Jesus was glorified at the cross. The cross showed his perfect obedience to God the Father. The cross showed his love for the people he had come to redeem. He voluntarily laid down his life 
to save us. But what he prayed was to be glorified at the cross so that God the Father would be glorified. Jesus was absorbed with bringing glory to God. And the cross does bring glory to God as well, to God the Father. It shows all of his attributes, his wisdom and his power and his sovereignty, his provision. But what the cross highlights most is his righteousness and his loving kindness. Romans 3.26 tells us that God put forth his son as a propitiation for our sins, that he might show his righteousness and be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just. He's the perfect holy judge. His justice requires payment for sin. He can't just let it slide. He must have justice. But he's also the justifier. He shows love and mercy to us by punishing that sin, not in us, but in his son. This is what brings God glory at the cross. Justice and mercy meet in perfect righteousness. Now, Jesus goes on to say that the Father has given him two gifts, which he mentions in this prayer. First, he's been given authority over all flesh. That means over all of mankind. We don't fully see this now, but Philippians 2 tells us that there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His own people will bow in love and adoration but other people will bow in terror. Everyone will bow and will acknowledge that he is Lord. And the second gift he's been given is a people for his own possession. He says that five times in this prayer, the people you gave me. He says it in verse two, twice in verse six, verse nine and verse 11. He also says it in several other places in John's gospel. Jesus has further defined these people as those who would believe or who would trust in him. Those who were given must respond in faith. This is the doctrine of election. We don't always like that doctrine because we have puny little minds who think somehow it's unfair, but you can't get away from it here. This is the doctrine of election. People, a definite group of people that the father has given to the son. These are the people God has sovereignly chosen to redeem and call to faith in Christ. Now, Adam had been appointed by God to represent the whole human race back in the Garden of Eden, but he fell and his sin has affected all of us. In the same way, Christ is the representative of all who believe in him. His righteous life and his death for sin have been credited to our account. Therefore, to these people, the ones who believe in him, the ones given him by the Father, He has the authority to give eternal life. And we tend to think of eternal life as living forever. Did you notice the way Jesus defined it here? He defined it differently. He says eternal life is to know the only true God and himself whom God has sent. Well, what does this mean? Basically, the very basic level, it means to know who God is, to know the character and nature of God, to know that he exists, that he's the God of the Bible, that Jesus is God. But we might know a lot about God and not have saving belief 
James says, even the, de- even the demons know this much, and they certainly are not saved. Therefore, it must mean more than that. It means to receive him as your own personal God, to give him your own love and worship. But the word here, to know God, refers to a relationship, to knowing someone in a relationship. Adam knew Eve, and they had a child. Um, It means knowing and valuing another person in a relationship. So it means having a relationship with God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Having fellowship with him, studying his word, lifting up your heart in prayer, walking in faith and obedience, being conscious that your life is safely in his hands, and looking to him for strength and power and comfort and love. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's not just assent to some doctrine. What he's speaking about here is a personal, intimate relationship of love and communion with God the Father. And this can only be accomplished, he says here, by a personal relationship with him, with Jesus Christ, the one God has sent. Remember, he had just taught, for us it was weeks ago, but in reality, in this upper room discourse, it was a few minutes ago, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's John 14, 6. His accomplished mission is what's going to make it possible for people to come to the Father. So Jesus prayed for God to glorify him in his mission, to allow him to complete the mission and through it lead many sons and daughters to glory. But he also prayed here for his own glory. If you look at verse 5, it says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the glory that Jesus had had with God in eternity past, before the world existed. It was the glory he had in some measure set aside to take on human form. And how he must have longed to be back in glory with the Father. Um, And it was about to happen. He speaks here of his mission as if it were already completed because he has determined that he will complete it. And now that it is completed, he's looking forward to his ascension back to his rightful place in glory with the Father. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This is another clear claim to deity. Jesus said he existed with God the Father before the foundation of the earth, speaking of his eternal existence. And he also speaks of resuming the glory he had in God's presence. Now, God says in Isaiah... I will not share my glory with another. Jesus says here he did share God's glory, and he asked to share it again. This can only be true because he's God. So Jesus turns to pray for his disciples. Let's look at 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, 
that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. So Jesus prays for those who are standing with him, the 11. There may have been more people there. We don't really know. What a comfort this must have been for them to hear Jesus praying for them. You know how comforting it is when someone prays for you, but to have Jesus pray for you. Well, do you know he prays for us all the time? Hebrews 7.25 says this, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He prays for us all the time and I'm glad he does. So Jesus valued these men greatly because they were a gift of God to him. Do you ever think of yourself as a gift that God has given to Jesus? It's kind of a humbling thing to think of. Um, But this is the basis for his prayer that God has given these men to him. And that's the confidence he has that this prayer will be answered. So look at what he says about them. He says he's revealed God's character and his words to them. And they have believed he was sent by God. They had responded in faith to God's drawing their hearts to Jesus. He says they've received his words and know the truth and believe him. They've received him as savior sent by God the Father. So these believing disciples here are presented in stark contrast to the world. John uses the word world here to mean the unbelievers, those who neither understand nor believe Jesus. If you look at verse 25, this is how we know. It says the world does not know God. If you look at verse 14, the world hated them. So these are not believers he's talking about when he's talking about the world. And he says specifically in this prayer, I'm not praying for the world. Did you find that a little bit jarring? Because I did. Um, He's not saying he never prays for the world. He prayed for the world on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, I feel like he prays for believers who are still in the world who've not yet come to faith. What Jesus prays for for the world is conversion because until people are converted to faith, there's nothing else to pray for them. So Jesus discusses with his father the relationship between these disciples and the world. They're in the world. He says specifically that he's not asking to take them out of the world. They're in the world and sent to the world, but they're not of the world. What does that mean to be in the world, but not of the world? Well, it means that although they live in the world, they're citizens of heaven. They've come out from under the authority of the prince of this world, who is Satan, and come under the authority of the king of heaven. It means they're new creations in Christ. They think differently, speak differently, act differently. They have different goals. They have a different God than the world has. 
why he has left his disciples in the world. Do you ever wonder why God didn't take you home to be in heaven with him as soon as you got saved? Do you ever wish he had? Sometimes I do. Well, we can be assured since Jesus prayed this, there's a reason for leaving them in the world. And I can think of several reasons. Um, They're left to be salt and light. He told them that earlier. The world's a very dark place. And because God loves the world, he sent believers into the world to be salt and light. What would the world be like without the influence of Christian values? I can't imagine. Well, it's actually getting easier to imagine than it used to be. Um, Just need to look around. He left them in the world to draw others to Christ. That was their mission. They were sent in the world to tell people about Christ. We're left in the world for the formation of our Christian character. Um, We experience the same trials and tribulations that the world does. And as we struggle, we learn more and more about God and about his power to help us and about his grace and his goodness. We experience um, more and more victory as we are able to overcome temptations that just knock the world off its feet. We're left in the world to bring glory to God. That was Jesus' consuming passion was to bring glory to God. And we can bring glory to God whatever we're doing in everything we say and do, we can bring glory to God. So the disciples and we as Jesus' disciples are sent into the world so the world can see Jesus through us. We're not supposed to be hiding away in a monastery or in a holy huddle where we only speak to Christians. We're supposed to be in the world among the unbelievers. We're supposed to be loving them and at the same time having a completely different value system, goal, way of life than they have. Now, Jesus was leaving his beloved disciples behind in the world without him. He protected them, he said, while he was in the world. And in verse 12, he says, none of them were lost except Judas, the son of destruction. Now, this doesn't mean he kept 11 of them and only lost one. That's not what he's saying here. If he could lose one, how could we ever be sure of our salvation? So we need to use scripture to interpret scripture. Um, I'm gonna take you to two verses previously in John. And I have these marked in my Bible. You might wanna mark them too. John 6, 37, first turn there. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes, I will never cast out. Okay, flip a couple pages forward to John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. From these two passages, we can know that we're absolutely safe in our salvation because our eternal security doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. Um, He says, no one can snatch you away. He says, if you come to him, he will not turn you away. No one can snatch you out of his hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. 
And you can't jump out either. You can't snatch yourself out of the Father's hand. He says no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. We're safe because of him, not because of ourselves. So we can know from these verses that Judas was never truly a follower of Christ. He never truly came to Christ because he was cast out. He was never one of Jesus' sheep because he didn't follow Jesus. We know earlier from John that he was a thief. He followed Jesus for the money that was given to Jesus. Um, And he was snatched away from the band of disciples by his own sin and by Satan. So we know that he was never truly a follower. He had the appearance of being a disciple. He even fooled the other disciples, but he wasn't a follower. He was put in the 12 by God for the purpose of fulfilling scripture. That's what this verse tells us. So Jesus is leaving his disciples behind in the world, in the world and not of the world. And the world hates them just as it did Jesus. So he prays for God the Father to keep them, to guard them, just as he always has. This is the central request of Jesus' prayer, that the Father would guard the disciples. Will God answer that prayer? Absolutely, because the disciples are a gift from him to his son. Philippians 1.6 tells us, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And Jude 24, my favorite benediction, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is the doctrine of the the perseverance of the saints. If we are believers, God will keep us, just like he kept the disciples, and bring us safely home. So Jesus prays for four things for his disciples. First, he prays for their oneness, that they would be united with each other. And I'm gonna talk more about that when I get to the third part of the prayer, so we'll just move on from that for now. Second, he prays that they would have his joy fulfilled in themselves. And I think we often confuse joy and happiness. Happiness depends on your circumstances. And when things are going my way, I'm happy. Joy is something much deeper than that. Joy um, for Jesus came from, from fulfilling the mission that the Father had given him. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us he endured the cross for the joy set before him, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His joy came from completing the work It has eternal results and eternal consequences and eternal rewards. His joy came from offering unspeakable joy to others and from bringing glory to God. That's the same place their joy would come from. It's Jesus' joy that they have within them. From completing the mission that Jesus had given them to do and bringing glory to God and bringing souls to Christ. And that's the same joy that we can have as his disciples. So third, Jesus prayed for his disciples' protection from evil or from the evil one. Your translation may not always say the same thing. Um, It can actually be translated either way. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, deliver us from evil. And that can also be translated the evil, the evil one. So he's either praying for protection from Satan or he's praying for protection from all the evil in the world. And we don't really know which he's praying here. He himself had been living in the world for 33 years. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. He knew the power of the devil 
and the demonic forces around him. He knew the hatred of the world towards everything that's good and godly. And he was about to experience both of those things on the cross. And he knew the nature of man. He knew that man's hearts were evil. So he prayed for his disciples to be protected from these evil powers. And last, Jesus prayed for their sanctification. Sanctify, holy, consecrate. It's all the same word. We have three different words in this passage, but it's all the same word. It means to be set apart. To set apart from something. In this case, he's praying for them to be set apart from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And to be set apart to something. They were to be set apart to God. Jesus addresses his father here as Holy Father. Because his petition is that they will be kept holy. They will be kept set apart. Set apart from the world to serve God. Jesus says here, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart. He's setting himself apart to complete the mission that God has given him to do. To go to the cross. To save mankind. To bring God glory. And that's the only way the disciples and us are even able to be sanctified because he completed that mission. So sanctification. It's a lifelong process where we are transformed into the image of Christ. Speaking for myself, there's a long way to go. (laughs) Um, He prays that they'll be sanctified because he's sending them into the world. They're going to complete his mission of drawing people to God, bringing sons and daughters back to God. And for this, they need to be set apart. They need to have lives that were exemplary. Um, They need to be equipped and empowered by God. He prays that they'll be sanctified by God's word. And he says, your word is truth. Notice he doesn't say your word is true. He says your word is truth. He uses a noun, not an adjective. If he had said your word is true, that would mean there was some external standard by which we know that the word is true. But he says your word is truth. God's word is the standard by which all other truths need to be compared. If they don't conform to God's truth, then they're not true. We need to look at value systems, other religions, ideas, philosophies, science. If it doesn't conform to God's word, it's not true because God's word is the truth. Romans 2, uh, 12, 2 tells us to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God's word is what transforms us by studying God's word and applying it to our lives. Now, Paul describes the sanctification process as a struggle, a race, a fight, a war. Um, This is not a passive let go and let God. This is something we must actively fight for. Um, But we fight in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We don't fight in our own strength. And sanctification is a process. There are ups and downs. Although the trend should be upward. We should be being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. In this world, we'll never be sinless. But we should sin less and less and less. um, As we are conformed to the image of Christ. 
And this is what he's praying for his disciples. This is how they're gonna be kept by the Father through all these things. And then Jesus turns from the disciples to pray for us. So let's read 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and I know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. He's praying for us here. He's praying for us who will believe through their word. You can put your own name in there. I do not ask for these only, but also for, insert your name here, who will believe in me. Um, He knows our names. Our names are not all listed here, but he knows all our names. Our names, the Bible tells us, are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. When he prayed this prayer, he knew our names. He's praying personally for us and for the church here. How encouraging this must have been for the disciples who were listening, that people would come to believe because of their words. They overheard him pray this. Um, Jesus prays two things for us here. First, he prays for unity, that we would be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. They have from all all eternity been united in purpose, and in love, and in everything. The basis for our unity is because we are in them and they are in us, not because we have to drum up some human kind of relationship with each other, but the basis for our unity is that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Now, Jesus is not speaking about uniformity here. Um, He didn't create a church of robots. We are all different personalities. We have different gifts. We have different life experiences. And that is all to add to the richness of the church. We're not all supposed to be alike, but we're all supposed to be united. Neither is Jesus talking here about some kind of mashed up world religion where everything leads to God. Um, He's very specific about who he's talking about here. He's talking about believers who are in him and he is in them. Paul describes the sevenfold unity of the church in Ephesians 4. There's one body, that's the church, one spirit, the Holy Spirit who animates the church, one hope, eternal life dwelling in God's presence, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, one faith, the doctrinal truths of Christianity founded in God's word, one baptism, And Paul's not talking about dunking or sprinkling here. Those are outward signs of an inward transformation that's happened. That's the baptism he's talking about. And one God and Father of all. This is who we are in Christ. 
we're united with other believers because we're all united with Christ. Positionally, we're united. Do we see this in our experience? Well, sometimes we do. Um, I know many of you probably had the experience of meeting a stranger or being in a Bible study with people from another church or another race or going on a mission trip and immediately feeling a connection to people because you're both connected to Christ. Um, And it's wonderful when we feel that. But I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Um, The Church of Jesus Christ has a long way to go in this unity business here. He's prayed for us to be united. And because of our selfishness and our pride and our sin, we're often not united. It must hurt his heart to see some of the things that go on in the church, in his church. And he prayed for unity for us. And he says it twice, verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he says it again in verse 23, so that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you love me. It's for the sake of our witness to the world that he prayed for unity. What does our witness look like? Well, all too often, it's not great. And the world's not drawn to Jesus because of it. Um, And ladies, we don't need to sit back and complain about disunity in the church because it's up to each of us individually to contribute to that unity. Um, We need to strive for this unity that Jesus is talking about. His love was a self-sacrificial love. The Father's love is a self-sacrificial love. And that's the kind of love we need to have for other people. Everybody in the church, let's face it, is not lovable. But we need to love them anyway. Um, We need to be united with them. Unity's hard work. And what it involves more than anything else is setting aside ourselves, just moving ourselves out of the way and keeping our eyes on others' interests and keeping our eyes most of all on Jesus. So let's move on from that depressing subject with a resolve to do something about it (laughs) and look at the second part of his prayer for us. Jesus says he desires. That's a strong word. And right here is the only time Jesus uses that word for himself. It means not just that he really wants it, but that he is resolved and determined for it to happen and that he takes pleasure in it. He desires for us to be where he is and see his glory. Now we see it now, but we don't see it clearly. We see his glory in ways that the world doesn't see his glory. We see the glory of the cross. We see the glory of what he did, but we don't see it clearly. Um, He's praying for us to be where he is in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth. This is the theme of the Bible, God dwelling with his people. You saw it in the Garden of Eden where God dwelt with Adam and Eve. You saw it in the tabernacle when we studied that last year with God dwelling in the midst of his people. This has always been his goal to have a people for himself and to dwell with them. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He told the disciples back in chapter 14 that he was going to prepare a place for him. And that if he did that, he would come back and bring them to be where he was. He's extending that promise here to us. He wants us to be with him where he is. And if that's not enough, the last verse is just astounding. 
Jesus said that he has made and will continue to make God the Father known to him, to us, so that the love which God the Father had loved him from before the foundation of the world will be in us. This precious, tender, intense, unexplainable love that God the Father has for his son, he has for us because Christ is in us. That's just more than I can even understand. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus' willingness to die for us, for your willingness to allow it, that we might be called your sons and daughters and and dwell with you forever. Father, we thank you. You've given us the Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us into all truth. Father, we thank you for your word, which you've given to us and preserved for us because your word is truth. Help us to live sanctified lives, Lord, through your word, to be holy and pure and set apart, to be in the world as salt and light, and to be in the world, but not of the world. Father, we thank you for the fellowship and and the oneness we have here at Grace. Um, We ask that you would help us to set ourselves aside, keep our focus on you, and be more united to be united not only with people here at Grace, but people in other churches, people in the church throughout the world. Father, that the world would see through us who you really are and be drawn to you. Father, we thank you for the inexpressible love with which you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.